This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. This podcast is sponsored by DonorBox. DonorBox, helping you help others with the best donation forms in the business. Hello, podcast listeners. Well, thanks so much for tuning in today. So great to have you, particularly those who just w- listen every week. Uh, it's fun to hear stories about people you know, going to the gym and listening to this or on their commute to or from work. It's just fun to hear that. So in fact, if you have any stories, you have any comments, uh, if you want to share what was particularly helpful about a particular episode, please let me know. I would love to find out. You know, my goal is always to make this as practical and as helpful and useful as possible. So please let me know on that. And you can just email me at rob at robharder.com. Again, it's rob at robharter, R-O-B-H-A-R-T-E-R.com. The other thing I was going to mention to you is that I am now a professionally certified coach. Many of you may have heard about that. Maybe you don't know about that, but I just want to pass on that if you ever have thought coaching may be for you, but weren't sure what it was all about, reach out. You can, again, email me at rob at robharder.com. Just say, hey, I'd, I'd be interested in finding find out more about coaching. I'd be happy to provide a free sample coaching session so you can determine if coaching is for you. So again, you could check it out. Go to my website, robharder.com and find out more information or again, just email me. All right. Now today's topic, speaking of practical, this topic we're going to talk about today is something that is really very specific. It's a very niche topic, but it's something I've never had on the show before. It's this question of self-dealing. And maybe you wonder, why are we talking about that here at this podcast? Well, my guess is all of you as nonprofit leaders, whether you're an executive director, a development director, or just on a staff or board member of a nonprofit, you depend on donations. And of course, a lot of donations more and more are coming from foundations, specifically family foundations. Well, this organization that we're having on the show today is represented by Stephanie Yan, and she's the managing director of GHJ. They're an accounting firm that specializes in working with foundations in order to help them navigate through all the various guidelines for running their foundation, and specifically when it comes to the pitfalls of self-dealing. So I think this is going to be one of those shows that'll be very specific, but I think very helpful. And it may be one of those that you may want to send on and forward on to your board and or to some of your donors that utilize a family foundation because it's very helpful information. All right, now on to today's show. All right, well, first of all, thank you so much, Stephanie, for being on the show today. Thank you for having me here, Rob. Absolutely. Well, today we're going to focus on uh, some of the pitfalls that donors could fall into if they're not aware of the guidelines and rules around these issues we're going to talk about. And for my listeners, this is a very specific conversation. And as I was talking to Stephanie before the show, I mentioned her that this is a very unique kind of set of specific rules and guidelines around the issue of self-dealing. However, as we, as nonprofit leaders and development, you know, directors and fundraisers lean more on family foundations or just foundations in general, these are really, really important rules and guidelines that people need to be aware of, particularly if you support different nonprofits or of course, if you're a fundraiser. So with that in mind, let's talk about self-dealing. Stephanie, let's start by giving a quick overview. What is self-dealing and why can it be a problem? 
Yeah, sure, Rob. So self-dealing in the broad sense is when a fiduciary take advantage of their position in a transaction, acting their own interests rather than the interests of the organization that entrusted them with those fiduciary duties. So self-dealing can happen in the corporate world, in the professional service environment, and of course, in nonprofits. Uh, what I'm covering here today is in the private foundation setting in general. There are a set of internal revenue code, uh, section 4941 specifically, that defines acts of self-dealings. They include a wide range of financial transactions between a private foundation and disqualified persons. Why can it be a problem, you asked? Well, like many tax regulations, these rules can be confusing and sometimes uh, counterintuitive. So when a private foundation and a disqualified person enter into a self-dealing transaction, many times unknowingly, they subject themselves to penalties in the form of excise tax. So interesting. Okay. So again, I always strive to be as practical as possible for my listeners. I understand there's seven types of transactions that the IRS considers self-dealing. Let's go through those real quick. What are those top seven? Yeah, sure. But before getting to the types of transactions, let me explain the term disqualified persons. So there are several different categories of disqualified persons. One is a foundation manager that includes officers, directors, and trustees of a foundation. Second one is substantial contributors to a foundation. Third, individuals with greater than 20% ownership interest in a corporation, partnership, or trust that itself is a substantial contributor to a foundation. Fourth, family members to all of the above. So that includes parents, grandparents, children, grandchildren, and spouse. And last but not the least, corporations, partnerships, trusts, estates, in which a disqualified person has greater than 35% ownership interest. So as you can see, it's a very broad base that you're working with. That is a broad list. Yeah. Okay. Again, I'm glad we're going through this. Okay. Now how about the seven? Yeah. Then the seven types of transactions. Exactly. So going back to the transaction, the, the seven types, first one is sale, exchange, or leasing of a property between a foundation and disqualified person. Second one is leases in general. Third, lending money or other extensions of credit between a foundation and disqualified person. Fourth, providing goods, services, or facilities back and forth again. And fifth, a foundation paying compensation or reimbursing expenses to a disqualified person. Six, a foundation transferring its income or assets to or for the use or benefit of a disqualified person. And lastly, certain agreements to make payments to government officials. So these are the seven types. As you can see, these categories start off really broad. Then the IRS actually walks back by listing out exceptions within each categories. So for example, we talked about lease earlier, right? However, an exception within lease is a disqualified person can lease property to a foundation if the lease arrangement is rent-free. We talked about lending money and extension of credit. 
So an exception is a disqualified person can lend money to a foundation if it's interest-free. Another example, you know, a disqualified person can be compensated for the performance of personal services when those services are uh, reasonable and necessary for the foundation to carry out its uh, taxes and purpose. So as you can imagine, trying to navigate between the rules and the exceptions to understand what's acceptable, what's not, it becomes confusing. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Now, I would guess when donors run afoul of these self-dealing rules, they're not often done, maybe even most often not done deliberately or maliciously. However, they probably just ran across those. They didn't even know about these guidelines or rules. Yet, the penalties the IRS can you know, impose on somebody who does cross these guidelines and rules can be pretty strict. So can you talk about the consequences of not getting this right if you're a foundation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you're 100% right. I have seen this over my years practicing. You know, people fall into those traps without realizing, you know, the rules were there in the first place sometimes. So the common pitfalls I've seen over the years, I can give you some examples One is tickets and tables for fundraising events. As you know, as a board member to to a private foundation, often they get invited to galas and fundraising functions put on by the public charities that the foundation support. And the board members, you know, have a duty representing the private foundation to attend those events. So it's perfectly okay for them to attend those events using the tickets and tables paid for by private foundations. However, if their spouse or children who have no business in representing the foundation want to attend the event, the tickets has to be paid for by those individuals, not by the foundation. Um, Another example I've seen from time to time is when individuals make personal pledges to make donations supporting public charities. You can turn around and ask your family foundation to fulfill those pledges on your behalf because you, as an individual, you know, really need to make whole of the promises you make to public charities. Another example I've seen from time to time is board members or executives of private foundations incur expenses, right? For, of course, if the expenses are for the business of the foundation that further the mission of the foundation and that's reasonable and not excessive, perfectly fine. However, if somebody pull out the wrong credit card for once and charge a personal expense, that becomes an issue. It's actually self-dealing. What else? Well, for example, compensation is another hot topic. You're allowed as executives and board members, you're allowed to be paid for your personal services provided to the foundation. Again, as long as they are reasonable and necessary for to further the mission of the private foundation. Okay, so you asked what are the consequences? So private foundations must formally attest to whether there were any self-dealing transactions during the year when they filed the annual tax return, Form 990. So there's a specific part in the tax return where there are a series of questions uh, looking for yes or no answers. Depending on the answers, if uh, any self-dealing transaction is identified, um, then you move on to another form, Form 4720, where you first report the self-dealing act 
And secondly, calculate the excise tax, which, like I mentioned, is the penalty that you pay for taking on this self-dealing act. And the excise tax is 10% of the amount involved in the act of self-dealing, and that's being imposed on the disqualified person who is involved. Not the foundation, but the person who's involved. Then if the act is not corrected on a timely manner, the same 10% tax is levied upon in the next year and the year after until this act is properly unwound and both parties being put back in the original position. So as you can see, it can add up pretty Really quickly, quickly. right? Yeah. We'll be right back. Are you looking for an easy and effective way to boost your nonprofit's donations? Look no further than DonorBox, the online fundraising platform that streamlines your fundraising efforts, maximizes donations, and simplifies giving for your supporters. With DonorBox, you can create beautiful donation forms, accept digital wallet payments, track donations, and send auto receipts. And the best part? There are no setup or monthly fees and no long-term contracts required. So what are you waiting for? Visit DonorBox.org today to get started. That is DonorBox.org. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. I wanted to let you know that I've recently become a professionally certified coach. With my nearly 30 years of nonprofit experience, I know firsthand how hard leaders work. I also know how important it is to have someone you can call on to get help with the barriers and leadership challenges you will face both professionally and personally. I really want people to thrive and become all they were meant to become by providing coaching and consulting services. If coaching is something you've always been interested in, but weren't quite sure what it was all about, I encourage you to reach out. You can go to my website, robharder.com, or just email me at rob at robharder.com. I would be happy to provide a free sample coaching session so you can determine if coaching is for you. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Interesting. Okay. So in so many of these cases, foundations can implement internal processes as well as work with an auditor, I'm assuming, to avoid really the most common self-dealing pitfalls. What are the, some of those key internal processes that you would recommend foundations to implement? And then if, again, if a nonprofit listener is hearing this and they're a development director or an executive director of their nonprofit, and they can kind of coach the foundations that support their organizations, again, what are some of those key internal processes that you would recommend they implement? Yeah, I'd say first off, you want to have a conflict of interest policy in place and have your board members and executives review the policy and disclose their involvement and their immediate family members' involvement in businesses and charities on an annual basis. So this would give the foundation an understanding of the pool of the disqualified persons that they need to be aware of. So that's the first step. Secondly, it's important for the decision makers in the foundation to have a general understanding of the topic. So I'd recommend the foundation provide regular trainings to board members and executives on the topic of self-dealings. We don't need to know all the nuances, but you know, having a baseline understanding and awareness of the issue would help 
those people in the position of uh, decision-making to flag any arrangement that could potentially cause problem, right? So that gives the foundation a chance to pause and consult with their CPAs or attorneys uh, before the transaction goes on and takes place. Like I mentioned, once that happens, it's costly to unwind. And also, you know, the reporting and the tax burden is tremendous. Yeah, if I then a couple of other specific policies that I'd recommend. One is to have travel and expense reimbursement policy in place so that when employees or board members they have rules and guidance to follow so that they would only charge or requesting reimbursements for expenses that are reasonable and necessary uh, to carry out the mission of the foundation. Another topic I mentioned was the compensation. So when it comes to compensation for personal expenses, whether it being salaries to officers or you know fees paid to the directors, it's important that the foundation uh, carefully document those individuals' qualifications, their duties, and their key accomplishments. So, and it'll, it would also be helpful to have compensation studies done periodically to ensure that the package as a whole is commensurate with the individual's qualifications and responsibilities. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Okay. Good. No, very helpful. Okay, good. Well, so you say a few of my listeners leave foundations and they're listening to this podcast and think, okay, perhaps they've unknowingly been self-dealing and they didn't realize it, but then as they're listening to you, they're like, well, maybe we have. How can they course correct if that is the case? Yeah, I'd say seek advice from your CPA or attorney. If you have any concern, uh, if what I talked about kind of triggered a red flag, you know, talk through the situation with your CPA and your attorney to figure out whether it is in fact self-dealing. Now, if it is, you need to unwind the transaction to the extent possible. Then also you need to report it on the tax return, the Form 990, the Form 4720 we talked about. Then along with the forms, the individuals who were involved in the act of self-dealing need to make the payment for excise tax owed. So that's how you course correct and put the matter behind you. I also want to add that it's important to work with the right CPA and attorney. So as CPAs, we have different areas of focus just like doctors, right? You don't go to a neurosurgeon when you have a heart condition. So the same goes for the CPAs and same goes for the attorneys. You want to work with those who have expertise in tax-exempt organizations who are familiar with the rules and the nuances specific to tax-exempt organizations. Very helpful. That's great. Okay. Now, when it comes to just people wanting to know a little bit more about this, obviously you offer a lot of services. What would you recommend? Like, what are the next few steps if an organization or an executive director is listening and they're like, yes, we need some help. You've already given us some guidelines of, you know, get an auditor, go get work with a good CPA. Anything else about what you'd recommend them to look for in terms of resources and then what you could offer even from your company? Yeah, sure. So for the specifics on the self-dealing rules, I think IRS website is the 
the official place to get the right information, irs.gov, upper right corner of the front page, there's a charities and nonprofits section. It should take you to the tax information tools and resources for charities and other tax exempt organizations that are relevant to you. There are peer networking groups and the philanthropic service advisors in your area. Go seek help there. Then last but not the least, you know, we are here. Contact us, ghjadvisors.com. Find us on LinkedIn. That's great. Well, Stephanie, thanks so much for reaching out and uh, yeah, wanting to share some of this because I think it's very helpful. It's one of those things that, as I mentioned to you, we've never had anybody like you on the show to talk about these things, but it is a real issue and foundations that are so vital to the fundraising efforts of nonprofits. You want to make sure they're doing the right thing, that nonprofits can coach them in that same way. So thanks again for sharing your insights and being on the show today. Yeah, my pleasure. And again, thanks for having me, Rob. Absolutely. You bet. Hey, friends. Well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.